Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. Hello. I'm so happy to be with the eminently interesting, yet honestly humble, Jewel Selbo. Hi. We're talking about the new clever crime mystery she's crafted for her character, Dee Rommel. How is everything? Everything is so good. How about you? About a year ago, I talked to Jewel about the first book in the D. Rommel crime series called Ten Days. Now, D is back, and she's on a new deadline. This time, the deadline and the name of the book is Nine Days. Okay, you're a little quiet to me. Is there a way to adjust how close you are to your mic? Um, how about if I just talk up? Oh, is that good? That's much better. Whatever you just did improved it greatly. So the mystery in nine days begins with an arrest and a confession. It looks tidy, like it's already wrapped up. But the accused is a famous astrologist whose 12-year-old son doesn't believe his mother committed the crime. And he hires Dee to find the truth. I think that this, you know, getting to truth and the way that you've played with nature and nurture is, it's so fun. Oh, good. <laughs> it's so clever. It's, yeah, actually the first question I wanted to ask you is like how you felt about this book. What did it feel like to release the second one? It was a little nerve wracking because 10 days did so well and people responded to it um, much more positively than I could have ever hoped for. And it's, it won awards and it got the starred Kirkus review and everything. So the pressure of doing nine days, I just had to kind of block it out and just kind of go back to the reason I love to write is to explore these different ideas that are circling around in my head. And now I'm kind of loving D because she can be a skeptic. Yeah. She's got a big chip on her shoulder, but there's a real vulnerable part to her also. So being able to explore things through her eyes, that I as the author want to explore, is um, it's really fun. But I was nervous that, you know, people would go, oh, well, the first one was good, but yeah, yeah, okay, thanks, bye. Because <laughs> I know I have, I have to get down to one day. So I, I'm really pleased that people are responding really well to nine days. Yeah. Yeah, so talk a little bit about how 10 Days was well-received. So you mentioned the Kirkus Star Review. I wrote down something about Nashville. You were at an event in Nashville, and it won something in Nashville. Yeah, um, the Killer Nashville Conference um, happens every year. It's all mystery writers. It's just so much fun to go to. And I knew that the book was up for a Silver Felchian Award. 
for best, uh, one of the best investigator novels. But I rarely win things. I, you know, I like I've never won a lottery. I've never won anything taken out of a hat. And so I'm just sitting there eating my chicken with this couple of new friends that I made that are mystery writers. And they were announcing the awards and they said, Jules Elbow, 10 days. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so great. So they gave me a big medal. It kind of looks like an Olympic medal. And then there were different categories. There was best investigator, there was best um, supernatural, best mystery crime, um, best cozy crime mystery. So then we all just, you know, it was at a hotel. So we're all just at the bar afterwards, you know, clinking glasses and having a good time. I love that you were surprised by it, that you were like, oh, oh, it's me. <laughs> I never win anything. <laughs> like that's a, your, your sense of like luck. <laughs> <laughs> it was lucky that um, by the time I went to Killer Nashville, nine days was a month away from publication. So that was fun. And then I went to ButcherCon, um, which is, was in Minneapolis this year, which is the bigger mystery crime writers conference. And that was fascinating. There were so many amazing writers there. Um, Dennis Kane, Joe Nesbo, um, Harriet Clearman. All these people I've been reading for years, they're on the panels, you know, and I'm on the panels with them. And they're like, they go through the same thing with every book. They never know if it's working until, you know, at a certain point where they think it might be working, but they still have to get the audience reaction. I think that's like the last word or the last sentence you have in your acknowledgments is when you're too tired to write, read good books. <laughs> yes. Energy will return. It is true. Yeah. I think that's interesting that you feel energized by reading good books, but then also to sit in a room with some of those authors and feel like a commonality or a common experience. Yes even outside of your genre. Yeah. When I read my friends' books that are more beautiful prose, and then I find myself writing something, I go, oh, that's kind of poetic. Oh, that's kind of nice. And I go, yeah, but it's not D. So I have to cross it out, you know, because I want it to be in her voice, what she would say, the words that she would choose. And she's just not someone who's going to be like laying on the ground, you know, looking at the clouds and seeing shapes and that kind of thing. Right. Yes, she has a very grounded way about her. But this book, in this story with Dee, she does talk about nature and nurture. And you bring in this element of astrology that even though she's this great, she's a great voice of skepticism, but you kind of weave it in so that it's very, you can see her giving thought and pause to it. There is some poetic parts to that I think well it was interesting to as I delved into that um, astrology part of it because I guess I'm a skeptic also just because we were brought up to be it it's, it's always been kind of denigrated yes and then the research I did and how it was one of the higher sciences you know in the 14th 13th 12th century and I found it very interesting that it was at one point so respected and then also, it made a lot of sense to me that when you, you know, I have five brothers and sisters, and we are all so different. And we were nurtured by the same parents. 
And yet we are different interests, different takes on life, um, everything. And I thought, well, that's interesting because there has to be something else besides just nurture. Yes. That's a great way to explain it. Cause I think everybody that has a sibling is nodding their head when you say something like that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are so different <laughs> and yet shuffled from the same deck. Yep. When I was reading it, I was like, Oh, I'd like to look that up actually. Yeah. Like you had me curious about it, just the way you were describing it. And just the way D was interacting with it. It was tantalizing. How did you learn enough about it to make that feel plausible, feel like something I want to learn more about? Yeah, well, I did a ton of research, internet research, and then in library research, YouTube research. But I have a very good friend, um, Susan Merson, who's also a writer, um, and she lives in Woodstock, New York, and she is a very talented tarot card reader. And I have known her for 30 years, maybe. And I always thought it was this kind of like thing that she did, you know, and then she kept explaining it to me and I, and she studies all over the world. And so actually during COVID, it was the strangest thing. I just got in the habit of having a session with her every two weeks. Um, as kind of my therapy during COVID. I'd go, I don't know, I'm really feeling rotten or I'm feeling okay today. You know, she would read my cards and go, oh, well, this is happening. This is happening. This is happening in your world. And it's not astrology, but it's in that vein. And then I met a wonderful astrologist in Portland. Her name is uh, uh, Laura Santoro. And she would just come over and I'd say, give her the pages. And I go, this is what I think I want. Can you make sure I'm saying it right? And that it makes sense. And that I have right planets and moons and all that kind of stuff. And she was incredibly helpful. Because there's enough detail that I think you know what you're talking about. Thank you. <laughs> Which is good if you have somebody in your, in your corner who really does, you know, that helps the believability of it. Well, did your ideas about it, what you thought about it, did they change as you wrote this story? Did you feel more like this was plausible that this idea about being able to, you know, uh, how does it, how does the character say it? It's, um, it doesn't necessarily predict what we're going to do, but it might explain the why behind what you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's actually spiritual. I think it's more mathematical and, you know, nature, knowing nature and understanding, um, you know, the tides and how the moon changes, and how animals react to it. Yeah. And, and then seeing the commonality and obviously, you know, we're just human animals. So I'd like to learn more about it. But at this point in my life, there's so many things I want to learn more about. And I'm already into eight days. And now I have a whole other task to learn about. Like I was with Lara, the astrologer, um, the other day, and she goes, what's going on? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm just kind of like on edge, you know. So she took out my chart and all that kind of stuff. And she said, oh, it'll, it'll be gone in three days. You'll feel better in three days. Pluto is doing something with Sagittarius. And the way it made me feel better. So it was, it was almost like a, okay. That's validating. Yeah. It's kind of cool to me. That as an author, you are, you're not just writing what you know, 
you're purposefully kind of choosing things you don't know about and then learning about them. Yeah. Write about. Yeah. Because I don't know, as, uh, as a writer who just, I just love to write. I love to sit in my little office and just have it quiet and just write. And while I'm doing, I go, oh, there's so many things out there that you're not doing. And so my research into those things, I think, <laughs> pushes me out and makes me more aware of the world. Mm. In eight days right now, I just learned about how cell towers worked and how many cell towers a community needs. So I was like, this is so interesting. And I don't know why I find it interesting, but I do. (laughs) I love that because you have a character in this book who's a child uh, turning 12, who is very interested in learning things and facts. And so that might just be a little hint at, at part of you. I think so. That's so fascinating the way you just explained that. Because I love his, I love how he throws in pertinent facts. We learn through the book that he's also kind of a clue giver, that he is helping lead D on this through this mystery. But he's a delightful character. Czar. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I like Czar. And I was thinking about just exactly what you said when I was writing Czar. I was like, I mean, he loves to hide behind facts. He loves to know, but he's not, he doesn't make himself vulnerable. And I thought that is such an interesting character. Yes, because he aligns with Dee. You know, she develops a relationship with him and you can see why they're both sort of drawn to the truth and to the facts. I, I really enjoyed him. He actually, one of my favorite things is when he explains Ken Burns <laughs> and why he likes Ken Burns. And I'm a big fan of Ken Burns. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so he says the restraint that Ken Burns shows gives the audience a chance to not feel manipulated. I was like, oh, I feel like you did that in this book. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that Czar um, uh, is is advising Gordy, the private investigator. You should you should watch Ken Burns. Why why haven't you watched him? <laughs> <laughs> he does. He has good ideas. This kiddo, he does have good ideas. Let me look at my notes real quick. Oh, you know, my one of my first notes is that there's a couple references in the beginning about liking that you're being underestimated. D enjoys being underestimated. Yes. Yes. And I think that being underestimated in her line of work allows her to get more information sometimes. And she's not threatening uh, to some of the thugs that she has to deal with because she's a woman. Plus she has a disability. And for them then to have to turn around and go, oh, wait a minute, now I have to deal with this person who's much smarter and capable, more capable than I thought. And I think this time in the first book where we really meet Dee, she's still recovering from the injury that leads her to needing a prosthesis. And the description of that, I can remember reading that and thinking you had given that such detail that that I had an understanding of it that I hadn't had before. And in this book, she's a year and a half out from her accident. And it's, it's more just how she's living life. Mm-hmm. But you have sort of layered in there that it is still something she's working through and something 
right? Yes, I think physically and psychologically and emotionally. She was an athlete. She played basketball. She, you know, ran the marathons, and it's something that's part of her, and she loves it. And I think in nine days, she's starting to go. Okay, other people do it. I part of it is that she still doesn't feel good about her body, right? And feel comfortable in being so evident in having lost half of her leg. So she's, it's interesting trying to build this 10 book arc for her, because I know where she's going to end as far as her physical sense of being and how she feels about herself. But I have to make sure that I follow the path to get her there. And then emotionally in, in nine days, she's still, you know, hasn't been intimate romantically. And she's, she's like going, okay, you know, yeah. I can't, this can't be my life for the rest of my life. So there's a lot of things that she's moving along um, in nine days that I think are on the way to emotional and physical and psychological health, but she still has a long way to go. Yes. Yes. You get that sense as you're reading it, that she's still working through things. Um, There's some references to superheroes in this book. (laughs) some known Hollywood superheroes. Did you know as you started writing that that was going to be a thread, this, these different superheroes and even the young boys, how Czar identifies himself as his own sort of caricature of a superhero? Well, it's so prevalent. I didn't know when I sat down to, as I wrote Nine Days, but then as Czar became a character and he started growing on the page and in my mind, um, and I just think of, this generation, I mean, Czar is almost 12, and um, it's all comic, comic book movies and superheroes, and and that whole sense of, well, there is somebody out there who can kind of come down and save the day. Yeah. And I know it's all fiction, and everyone knows it's fiction, except for there, it's become so much a part of of people's lives, especially young people's lives, that I just, I just kind of find it a little bit unnerving. This idea that there could be this person who whooshes in and kicks the bad guy and makes everything good is, is prevalent. Yeah. I wonder why that is, why as a society, that's so appealing. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. There's so much happening and sometimes the individual can feel semi-powerless because, you know, I'm just one person and I can have an opinion, but a lot of people have an opinion that's opposite to mine. And, and, you know, maybe it is appealing to have that superhero. That that must be the only path is you'd have to be a superhero. Well, the other thing you talk about sort of generational There's a lot of wealth and family heirlooms in this story. And I'm not sure how to pronounce this. A cairn or a carn? Cairn. Yes. DC's a cairn. This idea of impermanence, not being able to hold on to things. Yeah. I don't know. Did you mean to thread those two things together? Or was my mind just making a connection? Well, I'm glad you made the I'm glad you made the connection because it was semi in my head, but yeah, you know, Karen, uh, there's, because there's so many rocky beaches in Maine, 
the people will build these rock sculptures and try to balance the rocks and try to get as high as they can. But knowing that a wind or a wave or something at some point is going to knock it down, but you're building it and it's supposed to be a spiritual pathway. Like people put them on hikes on the trail to go, okay, yeah, you're on the trail. Don't worry. You're on the right path. It's amazing when you're actually doing it because there's an island. Well, actually it's in the book, Peaks Island right here off Portland, where um, whenever anybody visits us, we go to this beach and everyone just builds a cairn and hours can go by. And you look over and people are so intently doing their little rock sculpture. And it's just this peaceful thing that happens. And yet it's temporary. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's temporary as you're doing it. Yeah. So there's value in what's temporary. And yet D makes a little list at one point of things that she has. Um, Let's see if I can find my note on it. I think she has a wedding dress and a maritime book, Mm -hmm. a shaving cup with initials scratched on into the bottom of it. These are precious artifacts to her, right? Heirlooms. Yeah. There were heirlooms and it's even a key to the story. Mm -hmm. So what, where did that come from for you? Why did you, why did you weave that in that way? Well, I needed um, the conflict um, with sons and and the mother yes and then also the plot I needed it for the plot (laughs) yes yes it does really it absolutely boosts the plot I just kept writing down heirlooms and artifacts and connections to the past Mm -hmm. I thought is more than just moving the plot forward it felt like you must feel that way about something it just came through strongly through D I think yeah I've moved around a lot Um, I grew up in Fargo, North Dakota, went to school in Texas, North Carolina, moved to New York, LA. And even in LA, we moved quite a bit from neighborhood to neighborhood. But there's always, I have my great grandfather's shaving cup that goes with me everywhere I go. And, you know, it's got his initials on it and it has no value except for me, but it is, it's, it's like, okay, I know that's going to go on the shelf. It'll be one of the first things I unpack. Wow. So you gave that to Dee in this story. I did. I did. I love that. The other thing I love is Gordy. He just is such a great character. He has a few zingers in this one. He says at one point, stop going in circles get things done. Not everything is going to be the way you want it to be. And I wrote that down. These are words I should print and put at my desk. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, we can't wait around for things to become perfect. He just has a great presence in the story. He's a great guy to write for me because he's not her dad. He's her godfather. He's known her since she was a little baby. He knows the situation with her mother. He knows um, how much she loved her father and how much the father instilled in her a love of Maine. He knows she's smart and he knows she's capable and he can't stand the thought of her wallowing in any kind of hesitation about going forward in life. And so it's fun for me to, um, to write him maybe for what you said, because he can cut to the chase. It's not a parent, but it's a 
It's a godfather who is actually her boss and a good friend, and he's got his own problems. And so it's deep to go back at him right. and say, yeah, but what are you doing, you know? Yes. Yes, you wrote some funny lines in this book. Um, there's a few interactions with her and the biker. Reader. Great name for a character in a book, reader, where they're just funny. And I think your dialogue is succinct and doesn't feel like a script. It feels like people are talking. Oh, good. Good. I laughed at some of his interactions with her. I thought he was great. And he's also super smart. He helps her unravel some things. Yeah. She is kind of surrounded by people that are maybe are underestimated or try to be underestimated, try to put themselves in, into clothes and situations that don't completely give out their full intelligence, huh. their full depth. So I just want to know your reaction to um, Donato in this book and his dilemma. I feel like he's still a loose thread, <laughs> right? Good. And I like that because he's a likable, he's a likable person. And yet they're sort of, their stars have not aligned, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Another character that I really enjoyed writing was Rena, Rena Pale. She just became so interesting to me. Okay, before we get to the end of this episode, let's pause and listen to a few minutes from the book. You're going to hear a scene with Rena Pale, the astrologist Jewel just mentioned. We're at Rena's home on Peaks Island. Remember, Peaks Island is the real place Jewel said she likes to take people to build cairns along the beach. So, this is from Nine Days, written by Jewel Selbo, published by Panda Moon. The knife finds the release point. The shell pops open. I read in a book that there were oysters served in New York City before the Revolutionary War that were the size of a football. The oysters' silver, gray meat in their natural brine shine. She squeezes a little lemon over them. Aren't they scrumptious? She hands me a shell. Let's toast. To sweet little Czar. She taps her half-shell against mine, then downs the bivalve, relishing its plump, slurpable goodness. Join me. The oyster has a clean, creamy, briny taste. My tongue registers deliciousness. But my brain warns me that my stomach is not in the mood for food. I take my folder from my bag. Like you said, time is ticking. You said you have some information for me. From Agnes. She slurps another oyster. First things first, did you bring your exact birth time? Can we not worry about that? I called my mother last night. Missed her. Her housekeeper told me she was at the ballet. So, let's just skip that step. Sorry, I can't do that. Agnes wants to go deeper and make doubly sure you are the right person to help Czar. Birth time will tell us your moon sign, and that relates to your interior self, my dear. Czar has already hired us. 
That ship has sailed. Agnes doesn't want it to bash against rocks and capsize. Rena's face is resolute. I'll get the frittata ready. Call your mother, dear. Or we just can't continue. I see no way around it. I head outside to the porch, settle against the railing, my back to the salty, brisk breeze. My mother answers right away. She's probably just sat down in the breakfast room of her Beacon Hill townhouse. Always fruit and dry toast. Chester's probably across the table wearing a blue blazer and pink Oxford shirt, ready for a board meeting at the Art Center or the Boston Philharmonic. Is everything all right, honey? She's concerned. Neither of us are good at chit-chat, and a personal call always raises a worry flag. I'm fine, Mom. She includes her husband. Chester, it's Dee. Mom, kind of busy here. Quick question. I need to know the exact time of day I was born. As exact as you remember. Are you talking to an astrologist? Nothing gets past my mother. I'm working for a client, and it's become something... Who said... Oh, what's that saying? An unexamined life is not worth living? Mom, quick question, quick answer needed. Well, of course I remember. It was three minutes after midnight. The nursing staff was taking bets because you were so stubborn, and the next shift was just about to come on. She makes another connection. Oh, is this about Agnes Sons? Are you involved with that? I've met her. So intriguing. She actually prepared a chart for me. You believe in this stuff? I've learned to never dismiss possibilities. Wait, wait. Hold on, honey. What is it, Chester? I hear Chester's voice. That's right, my mother says. That's absolutely right. To me, she says, Socrates. Chester remembered it was Socrates who said that. Mom, thanks for the info. I have to go. Hold on. Her interest is piqued. Agnes Sanz is a gentle person. I was surprised to hear about the shooting. I glance inside Rena's house. She's moving from the kitchen to the dining area, merrily setting the small dining table. Gotta go, Mom. Is it harder or easier to compact the days? I'm finding it more difficult because I'm finding that I have to outline a little bit more specifically because I can't stretch out things over time. And then it's like, okay, so she needs to get from here to here. It's going to take her an hour to get there. So <laughs> that takes an hour out of the day. But she, she also has to sleep and she also has to do this and this and this. So it's fun. It's, like, it's a good problem for me to have. I'm really enjoying it. I knew I wanted to write a series, but I had no idea it was going to be 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And with that countdown, we'll close. I want you to know, as a listener of this podcast, you can save 15% off the D. Rommel Mystery Series with the code DP15 on pandamoon.com. The link to Pandamoon will be in my link tree.
on all the socials and in the show notes. I'd like to thank Jewel for sharing D with me. And as always, thank you for being here and for listening. Thank you. Okay, I'll see you soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, bye.